Well, welcome back to the pod. We're sitting here in beautiful Belgrade, Montana, rural Belgrade, Montana. But uh, we're joined here by Clint. Howdy. And uh, Jim Dolan. Yep. Is it Dolan? That's, yep. that's what I thought. At least I got it right this time. You, you got it right. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, Oscar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're here with Jim and we're going to talk about his, I guess, life and kind of what he's been doing and been up to throughout the years. So uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in California, Northern California, um, in the East Bay, Livermore, which is was a small town when I grew up, but now it's like 90,000 people, like That's, a lot of the stuff around big cities. How many people when you grew up? I think there's 3,500. Oh, so it They did. had one grade oh, school, oh. and I went to the same grade school my grandparents went to huh. in town. So it's, you know, it, it's also major changes, and... Um. So it's, I grew up there in the fifties and sixties. And what did your parents do? Uh, my my dad worked with. We had he worked mostly odd jobs around town. He worked the record department. He worked for the Lawrence Radiation Laboratories as maintenance and things like that. And we had some cows, but we we didn't. And he also worked the family winery. We have a family winery there, uh, which is. Um, he worked that quite a bit. Sure. But um what kind of wine? Red and white wine. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's the oldest this finally being point where that's the family is no more involved coming up. Yeah. Cuz they've sold it off to bigger, you know, bigger people bought it out. But it's been the family for 143 years. That's quite a while. Yeah. So it's con canon. But it was I worked there through high school and Learn how to, you know, just labor basically as yeah. a kid. You know, steel glass, you know, swigging a bottle of wine once right. in a while. You know, things like that, you know. Teenagers, yeah. Yeah, but when we were kids, I remember my, my great uncle who was in charge of the winery told us, you know, kids, we had, you know, family members there, but they're all in high school or whatever. And he says, that don't ever steal from the family. If you want wine, we'll get you wine. You know, don't. Well, and the winery was never locked, which sounds really crazy mm-hmm. back then. But you can go in any of the doors, huh. you know. But uh, when we were in high school, you could buy Red Mountain Red, a dollar nine a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> so why would you want to steal from the family? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was cheaper to do it that Jeez. way. So, but I grew up with that in, in a when a pretty much a pretty close close community um then i was about 11 i saw montana my i have family at sheridan montana sheridan wyoming and i saw that country and we came across this all bozeman went down through the park and went back california but i remember it hit me that this is where i want to live at 11 years old i decided this is this is the place to be. It's kind of a wild time to be deciding where you want to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, really, I, I, so I got out of high school, and I mean, I almost, I applied a couple other colleges and had acceptance both Cal Poly and and Davis, uh, in some with some scholarships. UC Davis. Yeah, but then I decided I wanted to go to Montana State, and I paid out of state tuition to come here. That was the, the original part. But because um, I wanted to be here, right? So it was a. Uh, what was tuition my, like 
back in was oh. it 83 you started going to college uh let's or go no, back or 63 <laughs> sorry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> give me a couple so, years actually 66 66 okay. yeah but um i feel sorry for the kids now because then the state kicked in better than half of the college cost which they don't do now hmm. it's the much more burden on the students when i went to school it was twelve hundred dollars which is room and board and tuition for the year Holy shit! Yeah, I what? mean, it's like yeah. Look at that now. Uh, that's your your beer money for the first semester. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it 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 changed so much. But you know, of course, wages were cheaper then too. Right. But I, I put myself most of it through school. Myself through school, working in the dish room of the dormitories for the first three years, <clears throat> and um, it was seventy five cents an hour. Um, so. It took you a long time to get enough to pay tuition <laughs> mm-hmm. at that rate, you know. So, but um, we made it, you know. I made it through through college, and um, I tell everybody the the blue horses at Three Forks, which are a sculpture project I did ten years ago. This is the ten year anniversary of the blue horses. It's uh, thirty nine horse horses sculptures. Excuse me, I'm a an artist, a sculptor, <laughs> and end up. Uh, it was my gift to the people of Montana. So these horses alongside the highway on the hillside, and they look pretty cool. I mean, they're they're different. They some of them move in the wind. What side of Three Forks? Uh, it's on 287, going 289, you know, 287. Huh? going going from Three Forks to Helena to Townsend. Okay, it's up on a hillside there, and um, that was my gift to the people of Montana because when I went to school. At Montana State, it was the second year they became a university. It was just be Montana State College before I came here. But they ended up, so if the tuition went, out-of-state tuition went from $90 a quarter, a quarter system, to 180 You say, well, it's 90 bucks, no big deal. But what that big deal was. Nine, oh, hold on. Yeah. 90 bucks for out-of-state tuition? Yeah. They really wanted us. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> they wanted some diversification here. You know. but uh, it was ninety dollars. But you, you, when you look at it, an extra ninety dollars a quarter, you had an extra th- almost three hundred hours of work, mm-hmm. right? To make up this the ninety dollars. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then which is it's tremendous. You look at it that way. Yeah. So they had a a group of adults. You can go. At the university, you can ap- apply or challenge your tuition or whatever. So I went to that, nothing to lose, and and they asked, you know, went in front of the, this administration people and said, well, why do you think, you know, you should your tuition should be less or whatever? I said, well, you know, you, they sent out a catalog every five years, so there was nothing that's on the internet. You got a you got a book, you know, the size of Gideon's Bible right. with all the stuff in it, <laughs> you know. And then, um, so it, it was, it didn't show the 180, it showed the $90. And I said, so I, I think I should get, get back to uh, $90 for the, for the tuition. And I said, you know, I, I plan to live here the rest of my life and be an asset to, to the people of Montana. And with that, they huddled together and they said, you know, you're an in-state student. So they may be an in-state student and sent the money back for the first quarter. 
So that was pretty cool. That's so kind of nice they did I, that. Yeah, it was really nice of them just, you know, verbally doing that. And then the, from there, I always thought I'd, I would pay the people back from Montana uh, a project or something to show my, my uh, thankfulness. Right. gratefulness of doing this so i did these 39 horses and the big ones were like seven foot the shoulder and they're all i call them blue horses and um that was my gift to the people of montana for uh giving me that tuition waiver so out of state fees so at that point forward i was an in-state student <laughs> and that worked out pretty well you know i don't know if it worked like that nowadays oh i don't think so i think it's <laughs> they want the money <laughs> yeah you know? what uh did you know what you were going into when you went to school? Here? Yeah, I came. I went. I can't. I had this crazy idea. I thought I want to be a veterinarian, but uh, you know, I saw. I took the ag classes and the pre vets, and but uh, about end of my sophomore year, beer overtook me, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get you know past a B plus average, that that was wasn't wasn't going to get you in vet school, right? And I I think I was just it was. I dreamed that word it really wasn't a dream. I just thought, ah, maybe it'll be something to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something to do. So I stayed in Montana State for four years, got a degree in ag education, and then stayed and got a master's in ag um, education too. Uh, because they, I remember when I graduated in 70, that spring I flunked the, the, the draft, the physical, <laughs> and all of a sudden, the world opened up because you thought, okay, come June, I'm graduate on Saturday, and you know, come next week, you're going to get your, you already have your draft notice, you'd be on your way. You know, Where were you heading for the draft? Allegedly, I guess. Yeah, I, who knows? I mean, you know, I, I switched my draft board from California to uh, Helena, hmm. which was a good deal because my draft board in California was Oakland, oh. and it was like a big big fight at Oakland yeah. I mean the, the students had a block so you couldn't get in you know they, they blocked trains they did all kinds of stuff it was a really wild place to have a draft notice and I knew no one there right so it's just you know it was, it was going to be a tough situation no matter what is place so I transferred up to Helena where I had my my residency one of my college roommates folks house because I wanted to hunt so you had to oh, have in-state in in hunt tag, you know, tags. So, yep. so that's where I had my draft thing. And But they still drafted me. Then I, I flunked the physical, which was, you know, going like, and I know I had a hearing loss, and you could probably hear it in my voice. But uh, I didn't know how bad it was, but then they they flunked me, not a one, not a four F, but a one Y or something like that. <laughs> but they weren't going to take me. So I was figuring out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. The next two years were already planned, and all of a sudden you go like, oh, wow, what do I do now? And then <laughs> one of my college advisors said, do you want to go to grad school? Well, I got out of MSU with a, with a you know, a 2.5 grade point average. Right, pretty average. I mean, yeah, not written, not graduate material at all, you know. But they, they let me into grad school and paid for it. Mm. So one hundred and fifty dollars huh. a month. Plus they paid tuition. for it. Yeah, one hundred and fifty dollars a month to, in tuition. So that was, you know, I was driving the school bus at one hundred and forty-eight dollars a month. So I was rich. 
It's like go to school. Having the time of your life. And one more year of drinking beer. Right. Mm -hmm. You you think about it. It was just one more year of grad school. I got out in four quarters. And and then, um, but I was doing my artwork in college. Uh, We had a really good welding lab. And it's, you know, after World War II, it all, this is, in the 60s was quite a bit later after 45 but they had all the surface material i mean you know steel and everything else and like for students it was years for the taking right so they had piles of this stuff i could work with so and they had a big welding lab you just uh, yeah we throwing stuff together we started building horse traders, a couple of us. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and we never, I think we had maybe by the axles. <laughs> Everything else was furnished by the U.S. Yeah. government, <laughs> you know, plus a welding rod and everything. So it's a pretty good deal. Wow. And I started making little sculptures, a lot of nails and horseshoes. And um, I didn't take any art classes at all through high school or into college. And I don't, I don't say it's, Better, but I said it would have been different if I took classes, took art classes, and had some art background. Right. It would have been different, maybe not better or worse, but just different. So, because I think you can, you can learn things from from college art or high school art, and I didn't do it, so I had to learn a different way. Yeah, but the, you know, most of my stuff was sculpture. What well, is all sculpture? And mostly then it was steel, and. Um, you just played with it and tried to make make a horse or a cowboy with a rope or you know those things and I was selling them for five to fifteen dollars a piece. I was just about to ask. Do you remember the first thing you sold? I think my, I gave it to my brother. I made him a steer for his mm-hmm. birthday, and I I think we still have it out in the shop. I was supposed to reweld a leg or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, he'll eventually forget about it, so mm-hmm. I'll have it. <laughs> but uh, then I just kept with it through college and. And then when I graduated, I said I could, I could keep on driving the school bus, and then that pretty much paid my hard costs. Yeah. And um, put my fifty hours a weekend doing art. You know, and huh. I did, did a lot of, a lot of long, long days. Yeah, I would assume in but the beginning it, it was tough. But I think you know then Bozeman wasn't a cow town, but it was pretty close. So trying to sell pieces i actually went door to door on you know finding rich people that that you know the houses looked big so mm-hmm. they should have money <laughs> so you i mean once in a while you you sell in peace get some encouragement right and there's always some some shows you put some things in and then just hopefully you you kept improving and improving so eventually you're doing something that, that people would accept as more than just craft Cause, you know, this craft. Yeah, more than just an arts and craft product. Yeah, mm-hmm. arts and craft. Ours art and crap. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but you know what I mean. Things are like you always wanted, like you had an art show with a little. I had a, a stagecoach with six horses with a, you know, the horse. I mean, the horses are made of roller chain. You know, it washers for the ears, and yep. you know that whole type thing. And I can't figure out how come I didn't win first place. I knew that was the <laughs> best piece in the show, you know, but it was really kind of on the crafty end. Right. But I just kept with it, and my my big break as an artist was the, the geese at the Galton 
Airport, which is Bozeman International now. There's 10 geese that hang from the ceiling in there. Yeah. And um, I walked by them a couple I times. did those in 77. Really? So it was after him. I was my first big piece. It took me, you know, five or six years to get to that. But uh, it was kind of fun because Bozeman was quite a bit smaller, and the, and the airport was way smaller. But at the end up, most so we hadn't covered with uh, black garby sacks until the dedication of the of the airport. So there, we put them up in December. Dedication was in January, and so I had all these ten geese covered with hanging from the ceilings on a rod, right. each one of them, and I had them covered with gar, uh, dark garby garby sacks. So. When it came, to, you know, we're going to unveil the sculpture. Ted Swindon, the governor, was there. You know, it was, you know, maybe four or five hundred people. I don't know, but it's I sp- show. I spread the rumor to the the guy who at the radio station, Milt Vanderventer. I said, you know, there's ten geese under these these tarps. You know, he said, oh yeah, I understand that. I says, but what you don't know, there's tens are ganders and tens are geese. Uh-huh. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? I said, well, five of them have dongs on them about six inches long. <laughs> but of course, then he spread the rumor for the whole place. That yeah. So the time they thing. knocked him off the fishbowl, fishing, you know, fly rod, everybody's looking like crazy. Is that one? Is yeah. that one? <laughs> of course, I didn't do it. I should have done it, but I didn't do it. Were you making geese before you installed those, or were those your first big birds? Uh, I think they're my first big birds. Mm. When I approached the airport board, um, Ray Campo was the local, he taught school here in art and had a gallery. He, he, he asked me, to, why don't you submit something to the airport for, you know, for sculpture? And I had to have a couple of shows with his gallery. So I said, yeah. So he's the one actually encouraged me to do it. And I, you know, approached them. I said, here's what I like to do. And they said, well, they didn't know. So I said, I'll make you one goose, and I'll bring you next month's meeting. So I did that, and they, they really liked it. But they said, we don't have any money for, for <laughs> art, you know. So I, you know, okay, you go home. What are you going to do now? Because I really couldn't afford to do it just for, for yeah. free. And then uh, one of the board members, Pete Wake, came out of my, my single-car garage and came in and says, I'm going to, you know, Vivian, his wife, and he are going to pay for the, the geese to get started. And so I got uh, $8,000 for 10 geese, $800 a piece. And my single-car garage had, you know, up to nine geese. I did them one at a time, hanging from an eight-foot ceiling. They're like knife blades. Was, the feathers were all over the place, you know, tips of feathers. <laughs> but I made them all in there, and then that was a... My first big public hit, and I got quite a quite a bit of work off the geese, you know. From then, I eventually the horse of the museum, Rusty, had a chain. I don't think I've seen him. Have you seen him? He's up at the museum of the Rockies. Yeah, yeah. you've seen him if you drove by, but oh, it's outside. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's a big yeah. draft horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that was in the eighties. You put I that think up eighty one or, or eighty two. Yeah. And then to start doing more and more big pieces. Did you know? If you're not from Bozeman, I have a lot of the sculpture around town. I have eight um, bigger life-size elk in front of a bank, and then you know guys on the horses and more horses and you know, the, just other things around. <laughs> the Jim Dolan Sculpture Park. 
slash MSU. Yeah. You've got how many pieces <laughs> on campus now? I think we count everything. There's probably 11 or 12. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Not all not all outdoors. Some are indoors. Some are right. building. Yeah, they kind of – that's why I told them one day, they said, what's, what's, your, what's your goal? I says, make this – what Clint just said, mm-hmm. the Jim Dolan – Jim sculpture, Dolan University. Yeah, it's a sculpture park and also an MSU <laughs> <at> Bozeman. <laughs> so, huh. but it's it's been a good career, and I have good family. I've you know I was got married in '74. My wife taught school in Bozeman, and uh, it was so poor teaching. She, I think, of '74. She was making forty-seven hundred a year. Oh goodness! Full time. You know, it's like terrible wages, mm-hmm. but uh we lived on that, and, and my artwork, we tried to, um, when we had a $200 a month, we'd go out for dinner. Mm. You know. <laughs> so, wow. But then, you know, huh. hopefully you cr- improved. Right. And, and we had, you know, I had this, the my studio with an oversized car, one-car garage right in the house we rented. So I, I worked, you know, probably 50, 60-hour weeks for a long time. And then you go to shows, and because you didn't, there wasn't, a, or there still is not a formula on how to do it. Right. And if there is a formula, I, I don't know if it really works or not. <laughs> I'd probably mm-hmm. charge you too much money. Mm-hmm. You know, Clint's, Clint's a, a sculptor, and he's figuring out, you know, some of these art shows and what's going on and what's this worth doing and what isn't. And kind of the ways of that world. Yeah, it is. I think it's it, there's more people with money now than there were where it was before the in the early seventies there was none with money for art i mean there's very few there's a small handful you you know you wouldn't but I learned to have shows like in banks you know have you know not a bad place to do it yeah I mean rich people don't go to go for the drive-ins no they go inside the bank, so you have stands there and maybe you sell one or two. Usually the bank would, would sponsor a, you know, a tea or, huh. you know, Kool-Aid or something, you know. Yeah. So that that helped a little bit with that. But then just started doing more and more big pieces. I have a lot in the East Coast. Well, I think there's 12 or 14 big pieces on the East Coast. In Virginia and Maryland, the Carolinas, Pennsylvania, and that area there. All over the place. Yeah, and... And then I did a lot in Japan in the 90s. I was, I was just about to ask that. Clint was saying you did some stuff across yeah. the big pond. Yeah. And it was I did both. I worked here and made the sculpture here and shipped it. And I also went to Japan and worked in a, a big steel factory, NKK, Nikon Koken huh. Steel Company. And um, that was in Yokohama. When but was in, this? In the 90s, sure. late 80s, early 90s. Sure. And it was... Uh, and they saw the geese at the airport, and that's how I got the connection. That's in Japan. Wow! And my biggest bird sculpture is over there. It's uh, an eagle. It's, it's 27 feet tall. Wow! With, with a 36 foot wingspan. <laughs> that's downtown Osaka, and um, and I, I presume it's still there. I haven't been, not been over to see it, but you know. Who knows? I, I got paid. <laughs> As you say, you made it, got paid. See you yeah. later. Yeah. How was it uh, working in the Japanese steel factory? Like, how was it different than America? It was so, 
I mean, we have OSHA here, right? <laughs> and and yeah, it it was so safe that it was hard to work. Really, I mean, if it, this steel steel factory, the the um, the indoor part of it where it was all open could fit the the field house inside and not hit a wall. Huge. Oh my goodness. And they had piles of steel redoing stuff that was 60, 70 feet tall. I mean, just stacks of two four-inch thick, mm. four-by-four pieces of steel. It was just phenomenal. But inside, we built a, and for three weeks, we built a caribou, life-size caribou, and two geese, and a buffalo. I had three Japanese guys, and I had one American went over with me, Don Pollott, mm. who could also weld. And it was um, high humidity. The, the workers were great because they were, you know, they're workers. Right. Uh, they weren't high-end people. They were thrilled to be doing something besides <laughs> doing steel work. And ended up, uh, I always remember, I took two different classes in Japanese, which... I don't say it helped because you, you don't know enough to, to read to converse at that. Yeah. But I can say the niceties and pick <laughs> it up a little bit. But you know what the what the workers they didn't speak English and I did obviously didn't speak really Japanese. So we had a translation book back and forth and like the third day, uh the the um, the, the foreman there said basically uh says we 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 understand we don't need book mm. so we we threw the book i literally threw it away mm. and from that point forward it was all you know eye contact and and it worked out pretty well i mean they spoke japanese i spoke english yeah and it was just interesting and one of them we had to had to put a coating on one of them it was a, a, a epoxy you mixed I thought this was pretty cool because they had a, like a gallon can, then they had a, a little pint can. You're supposed to mix this together or something. Right. And they had directions in English and hiragana in Japanese and how to do this. And plus, they had the drawings. So it's pretty hard to screw up when you got all that stuff there. And so we sat down, I watched them, and three of them got down their haunches and talking back and forth. And I thought they must be joking, but they really didn't figure out how to mix this. And it's like, so I got down and going, uh-huh, just uh, ha, ha, yeah, yeah, ha, 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 with them too, you know. But we're all like trying to, it's a Japanese way. They don't make individual decisions. They do right. as a group. Yeah. So until the group all understood it, it wasn't going to happen. Huh. It sounds crazy. Like you say, yeah, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, when the light bulb went on, the light bulb went on. One of them is like they they're all, all they're like they're all connected with the cord. <laughs> chink, 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 and then we got it. But it was so funny. To, I wish I could have filmed it. Mm-hmm. It's just how they do it. They don't do things individually. See, that's weird. Se. Yeah, it really kind of is. But it works for them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's but, true. But we did. Yeah, I did a lot of things in Japan. I got got elk over there. I've got. Um, as, um, what do they say? Caribou, yep. buffalo, sea geese, eagles. A sea lion? Yeah, I sea lions. I've seen those. Yeah, three big, three big sea lions or 
on display down in southern Japan. And they were good. You know, the, the people themselves were great. They were, they were good people. I had a little challenge while I shipped the Eagle over. It had to go by, we had a 40-foot container, so we had to get inside that. The wings were separate. The tail section was six, four, uh, six by eight feet. Uh-huh. So it shows you how big the Eagle was. So we got all in the container, and they had a deadline for some something coming up, and they said, you know, ship it, ship it, ship it. Well, I hadn't been paid the last the last payment yet, so they kept saying, ship it, we'll pay you. And I'm going like, you know, I was born in the night, but it wasn't last night, <laughs> you know. So I end up uh, staying the ground. I, I, that's back the days of fax machines, right? Right. Which, you, you, if you don't know what a fax machine mm-hmm. is. You put a piece of paper and think, and you could draw on it or whatever, and it comes out to the, to the phone line for somebody else has a fax machine. So I on the fax machine, I just wrote a letter across it, across this, no money, no birdie. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> In two days, they wired the money. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it worked out pretty good. But um, When you were over there doing your residency in Japan, was were you – like commissioned by somebody to build all this stuff or were you just working out of somebody's shop and on and building these things off speculation or no we were commissioned oh okay mostly by the prefecture which is like their county government or state oh. government yeah um we had some really neat times when don and i went over don came with me which is it would have been a little a little lonelier because being by yourself because we worked from nine to eight. Oh goodness yeah then we took uh Sundays off and or, and like Sundays or Saturday, if you want to get out of there, you can get out of there. But high humidity, it was like you were drinking so much water. I thought I must be a diabetic because I couldn't. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't urinating, and I was drinking a, about a quarter water an hour. Jeez, mm-hmm. you know, just going straight through you. You're totally soaked. But uh, the the people were really nice, and we went out some nice places to dinner. We didn't have much. The we could, the hotel they put us in was really nice. And we could charge at the hotel for food. If we went out, then we had to buy our own food. You know, but we went mm-hmm. all over that part of Japan. We went, we had a lunch with Mike Mansfield, you know, the, the senator from Montana. Yeah. He, he was the ambassador to Japan. That was cool because we're, we're getting ready to go one morning and, and they're saying, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Where you go? Where you go? So we're going to see, you know, Michael Mansfield. They go, oh, no. yeah, he's from my home, home province. You know, we're good, for, we're friends, and we were. But so they could hardly believe that, because that, it, even in Japan, he was like the number two power broker in Japan was yeah. the U.S. ambassador, which was Mansfield, he, which did a great job. And he was great. I had lunch with him, and, and it was kind of fun to, to, get, to go to the embassy and, get to the gate you have to get through the japanese guards first then the american guards <laughs> you know, get japanese guards oh now what are you doing here you know blah blah i says we're here to see mike mansfield that's like saying to go see the president you know <laughs> so then we got past them and then the next set of guards had some agenda or something so we had cards that showed yeah but it was a it was it was a great time how the people were said were were really good. I only had one, one challenge. Otherwise, I wore my hat and boots all the time, even scarf over there. I figure people always help a lost puppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, see, so might as well look like one. Yeah, and and Japan is they're so efficient. You got trains. There's 
I don't know, 11 subways and 19 trains, something like that, in Tokyo. Really? So, I mean, you can go anywhere. You don't take a cab or, or you know, a car. You're much faster than the train, which huh. is, was kind of fun. But some of the trains, you get, you get so packed in there. They actually have pushers. When they open the doors, everybody gets in. They have guys that are there to help push more people into the train so they can close the doors. What? Yeah. That's when, that's safe. Yeah, I, I was, yeah, well, yeah, you don't need a seatbelt. You're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> the crash. But it was kind of funny because I looked around the one time. I thought, you know, if I move either one of my hands, I'd be fondling two different women. Uh-huh. <laughs> How often did you fart? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could fart all you want because you could mm. play, hey, hey, that wasn't you. <laughs> you know. Blame it on everybody else. Yeah, the only the only time we, uh, Don and I, we went to out to Yokosuka, which is the naval air base, naval ship base there, uh, south of Tokyo, and uh, one of those deals you, you keep ch- changing trains and things like this, and we had uh, dinner with one of our friends, who was the captain of a of a big cruiser, we had dinner with her at the officers club. Then we came back, but we were late enough, late enough at night that every they slow the trains down and stop trains at night so as you as it gets deeper in the night there's less trains that run right so if you miss the train you you miss getting home oh no so this train goes to the next station and they don't i mean they don't screw around it's but it's about a minute and then you're not on the train so we're, we hit the last i think four or five trains in a row right at right at the time just get out run get in the next one but the, the, every over there would help you. The hardest part, I think, one of the things was you're, you're in, you have a map of all the trains and subways, right? And they're, they're all under, not all underground, but, but all the subways are underground. And I've always learned points of compass. Yeah. You know, left, but there it's all, it has to be left or right because you can't tell which way is north or underground. Right. So, We'd map out this thing ahead of time. We'd go down and take, take the blue train to here, go across the top, hit the purple train going left, you know, then do all these things. But all, but, and you wanted to learn the train system, you know, but it was hard with the Japanese because as soon as you stop and look at a map or look at a puzzle, look at the board and hiragana and then the English underneath it, someone would come over and say, Shishumi Shimas which means, uh, excuse me, I'm going to be rude, but can I help you? And they would either get you to the train or they'd take you to your location. So it's like, I want to learn how to use this train, and I can't do it if I have all these people help me all the time. Yeah. And that was real t- real typical. Of course, you know, wearing a you know, cowboy hat and scarf, <laughs> that, was, that was kind of fun because uh, you get on the train, and normally people get on the train, first thing they do, they go to sleep. They go to sleep, and so then somehow miraculously they hear their their station to get off at. Just wake up. Yeah. See you later. But the, the young kids would would want to learn practice English, so if you if you're awake, they'd sit next to you and ask questions, which was was okay. And I had this one one kid says, "So who who are you in the United States is broken English? So what what do you do?" I said, "Well." 
I convinced one kid I was I was a center for the Celtics. They <laughs> 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 finally starts laughing. He realized mm-hmm. I'm joking. And I had one kid. I said, "So what are you? Who are you?" I said, "Me, Clint Eastwood." <laughs> you know, and they liked that too. Yeah. But it was fun. With the, the kids, the kids were great, and the adults. The only I'll tell you, the only challenge we had once. We're hitting all these trains coming back. I think it was from come back from Yokosuka, and the train was was empty, our compartment except for four um, older Japanese men, and they were probably in their fifties. They weren't real, real fifty or sixties, but they were they were talking about us, and they were talking about Americans. And I could the verb comes the predicate comes at the end of the sentence. In, in Japanese, so if you could pick up the predicate and one or two words ahead of that, you can you can kind of you know space things together. It's, it's like you know Jeopardy or something like yeah. that. So I end up, but I know they're talking about us, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, nice talk, and I can't really couldn't tell which is us individuals. It probably because we were Americans and we really showed it, <laughs> and they kind of resented it or something. So right before I got out, I I bowed, bowed to him and said, you know, she me, she must. And I, in my broken Japanese English, I told him I was thoroughly embarrassed that they would they would talk about a foreigner this way in Japan. Mm-hmm. They were so embarrassed they just literally almost cried. Huh. Mm-hmm. But it was like because they don't do that over there. They're right. Really nice. I mean, they won't do. But it's like you know, I heard everything. I didn't hear. I understand it all, but I heard. Could it. you put the mic a little closer? Yeah, but um, there we go. So that was that was good. I mean, with but we had it was just uh, when I was by myself the one time. I go to a restaurant it's like McDonald's. They call L O V E, and I'm not sure if it's Love or if it's Love, you know. But I went in there and got it. I needed to get a hamburger and, and a shake and a, some French fries because I was like, you know getting the shakes not having American food and um, so I mean I sat there eating at this table by myself and the table next to me was two American gals speaking American English at least they were speaking American English and I hadn't spoke American English in probably two weeks you know it's always that broken stuff yeah and I says me Jim who are you Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and they got up and moved over a couple oh. tables. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I would call home. I'd talk to my wife, and she says, "Are you okay? Me okay? You yeah. okay?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just it just came out because that's what you were speaking to me. You were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, huh? But uh, what happened after this Japan excursion? Um, did a lot of work on the East Coast for. I did uh, another airport and. Greenville, Spartanburg, with uh, snow geese, and I did a lot of big animals, mostly for business parks in um, Columbia, Maryland, and um, up in the Pennsylvania area, and most of it was for a couple different companies that that were developers and great guys. I had great lists, all all handshake over the phone. Yeah, you know, and they I knew them well enough that we could. We could do things back and forth, and um, it was cool. You know, go back there and ship things back. Go back and get a crane and crew, and those they provided, and then you made things easy on you. Yeah, make it easy on me. 
Did you go to Nepal right after Japan, or was that a different trip? I went to Nepal, let's see, in 99, 98, right then. Went over there for 30 days with one of my friends, and it was an organized group. Which you, you go to Nepal, you have to pay for porters and for, for Sherpas. That you can't do it on your own legally, which is it makes sense because you got to support the local economies. Right. But we spent thirty days, um, got up to nineteen thousand feet. Huh. And there wasn't any. Believe it or not, there wasn't any snow in nineteen thousand. <laughs> I'm sure there was nothing. It was all up there. rocks, and and we had some great experiences. I tried to get into some some wild sheep, and I was there, but I could never get close enough for a good good shot. But Huh. I did get a little bit of that high altitude azemia. Was yeah. this just a vacation trip, or did you yeah. go over to? Just a vacation trip, and there was there was ten Americans in our group, and then, you know, probably six or seven yeah. Sherpas, and they had over a hundred porters, because once they dropped us off in the helicopter, at this one location, from that point forward, there was no other place to get food, <laughs> so they actually had to have, uh, you know. A, what do you call it, a rally thing, going back and forth with porters carrying food yeah, for us. Okay. And then then they, they had to have food, too. Right. And so it's like it wasn't just you. You had to feed 100 porters somewhere along the way. Huh. But it was it was a really neat. When you see the Milky Way from 18,000, 19,000 oh, feet, sure it's, it's pretty wild. And that's still, you know, 2,000 feet below uh, Everest Base Camp. Yeah, and it's twenty one thousand, I think. And we were we weren't near Everest. We we're at Kachinjunga, which is the third largest peak in the world. Hmm. But uh, they had some avalanches above. We saw a couple of really cool avalanches. Like I said, we were never in snow, but the, it came down from the top. And it was pretty interesting. A lot of noise, and you can see if you hear an avalanche, you just kiss your butt goodbye. <laughs> You're yeah. not going to come out of there. Yeah. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I heard one this winter snowmobiling. So it was it was it was a weird experience. Where right in south Bellings? of Bozeman here, or oh. south of Big Sky actually. But we huh. were just sitting up there, sitting on our snowmobiles, just talking, and you just hear a low rumbling, and everything's kind of vibrating, and we're like, "Holy shit!" You got out of there. I think it was on the other side of the mountain, luckily. Oh, okay. But just hearing it, it was like, "Okay, these things are actually real." And yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my friends got killed in an avalanche up. I think it's up Horse Creek somewhere up huh. the canyon. Not Horse Creek, Deer Creek up, up the Gallatin. Yeah, he was filming his friends on high marking. Yeah, and he was two ridges, two swells away from him when he's filming, and it came down, went through the first swell and the second swell, and caught him on the really? ridge. I mean, I, I don't know how far Stinger. apart it was, but it wasn't like a straight down. He was right. totally safe, and and then just. Took them down. Things are wicked. It's yeah. uh, it's so nothing I, to mess with. No, so that's my my career just you know progressed from there, and now um, this is like the fifty second year full time. That's quite means, a while. Which to means be. I'm an old fart, you know, for, <laughs> for this thing. But it's um, I tell people I can do what I did when I was thirty five, but it takes me twice as long. <laughs> you know, but yeah. th- this now is when I, you know, you think, okay, you finally, after the first 40 years, most of it was month to month. Right. I mean, 
what case you got you know 15 more days before the first of september how you can make your house payments yeah paycheck to paycheck paycheck to paycheck and they had two kids and then um my first wife died of cancer and my kids were young so i married another gal with she had two kids and I thought we liked the Brady Bunch, but it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> you know? So it's funny to divorce her that I'm with a really nice gal now. Mm. But um, yeah, how long have you had this place? Since uh, seventy, no, eighty-one. It's quite so a while. It's, yeah, 40, 41 years, forty-two yeah. years. Because you guys had a ranch in Cardwell, yeah, Montana, for a while, didn't you? You had a ranch over there, and it was kind of like the art was paying the majority of it was was my art paying for it because it had to be because uh, it wouldn't run but about 100 cows yeah and the goal was to uh, when the kids got out of school here in Belgrade we'd sell this place I'm at now which is a house and 10 acres and the studio big studio wasn't here then but then um, the ranch would be paid off and we'd have built a house over there and a studio over there and you know Right. Had the best world, both worlds. Have yourself on a nice <laughs> ranch, ride a bunch of horses, and you know, and, and just be there. But you know, life has its own own stuff coming up and changed a little bit. So that's okay. I tell people when you walk out the door, when you turn left or you turn right, the whole world changes. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, you know. Yeah, I mean that's how it is. You know, and I've done a lot, of, a lot of fun things. I said Nepal was great. I took my son when he's a senior in high school. And my family's always done um, helping people, doing things. You know, I've worked with Mother Teresa's nuns <clears throat> with food banks and things like that in here. And so in Los Angeles and Miami, and I took my son. I said, hey, Jake, let's let's just go to the big leagues. You know, I said, what do you mean? He says, let's go work, work with Mother Teresa's nuns over in Haiti. You know, huh. so we went over to Haiti. It cost us more for shots than the airfare because you had to be <laughs> shot for everything. Mm-hmm. And you start, you know, um, malaria, I think, when you get back. But it was just a, that was a great experience for father and son being over there because about a third of the time we were we felt totally safe. About two thirds of the time we were just totally shitless, scared. <laughs> well, they had two people killed in front of our hotel when we were there for ten days. Really? Yeah, things like that. One got, one body got dumped off there, and it's it's it, it's really bad there now. It was bad when we were there, but now I guess it's just terrible. Uh-huh. But everything's got ten, twelve foot walls. Yeah. And on, on the outside of the walls, they cement coke bottles in, right? The walls. Then they break the tops off with a Oh goodness! A shovel or a hammer. Mm-hmm. So what you got? Yeah, no one crawls over that. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to have Ugh. ten blankets to get over the top. Mm-hmm. And when we stayed there, and I, I knew it was. We worked with in a, it was like a children's hospital type thing, and we and the kids were like, there were kids, good ones, bad ones. They tell which ones bite, keep the hell away from them, you know. Uh, but there were a few, but they, but uh. Most of them weren't orphans. There were kids that couldn't, that folks couldn't take care of anymore. About a third of them were HIV positive. Yeah. And um, it was pretty interesting. We worked in um, a, a City de Salah, which is the City of the Sun, which is where the, the, the dump, dumps is and, 
in uh, Port-au-Prince. Yeah. And I think there's, I forget, there's some like 70,000 people live in the dumps on top mm. of on top of the garbage. Oof. Not the ground, but on top of the garbage. Mm. And you just don't, until you get there, you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is really happening. But the nuns had a, uh, like a first aid station there, a building, and, and we were in that. And we sat down. They they brought brought me four at a time. So there's Jake and I and two nuns. And so they come from the door and sit down. And they show us what they had. And a lot of them had, you know, came back, you know, every once a week for change their bandages. Right. Some of, but some had some like, and some, I don't know what it was. It's like you take a a jar lid, like a fruit jar lid, and just take a big circle in your thigh, and it'd be a half inch deep. Totally infected with, with stuff there. Oh, it's like wow, this is pretty, you know. And I had one gal that had lost all her exodermis, all her skin. Mm-hmm. She had no skin from like her neck down to her, to her wrists and down to her oh, knees. Wow. What? What do you do? I mean, like you're there, you give her some some slab and mm-hmm. wrap her up. And, <clears throat> Tell her we'll see you next week. What'd she have then? Just her muscles showing or? Some fleshy yeah, disease another, or something. Another layer of skin, but it was like, it's like she'd been skinned. Huh. It's like, well, that's kind of interesting, to say the least. And each time we <laughs> we put on gloves, you know, uh, the, they was really poor because they, they, for bandages, they use sheets. So you mm. rip sheets up. Yeah. And then we had like rubber gloves, which are probably... They were so old, they she put them on you, they'd break. So finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to risk it. I'm not going to put rubber gloves on when I can. They weren't going to stay on anyway. So you're, you're dealing with HIV and all that stuff. And yeah. Had to be, you know, just to be safe. Yeah, mm. probably made you, uh, what's the word? Appreciate the world yeah. that we live in. Yeah. Hey, you see people, I mean, you see dead people on the street, you see a pile of garbage, and there'd be dogs and people fighting over the garbage. Huh. You know? Now, what I, I did, I felt, I traveled enough, I thought, okay, we're over here. I had probably $200 and $1 bills. Because he said, if we get in trouble, uh, you know, the like wages are like $20 a month. I mean, it's like, oh. there's, that was then. Not even a dollar a day. Yeah. So I figured if we get in trouble, we can run and we start tossing dollar bills up in the air. Because (laughs) they'll stop for the money. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. But they told us over that the hotel we stayed at, which was like a a place for uh, um, missionaries and stuff. But it was, you know, they locked the doors at dark. They don't open the doors till dawn next morning. They said, you'll be behind these walls before it's dark, and you don't leave till the sun in the morning. Because over here it says, if they rob you, they're probably going to kill you. Yeah. Because they don't want any witnesses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and the one cop car we saw was on blocks. So <laughs> <laughs> they were, so they were coming to help. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, but it was, it was a great experience for both of us to do that and as a father-son team. and But uh, you, you really have a chance to see it really poor people are like yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, most of them were just totally nice it, yeah. interesting part when they build a new house over there um, which obviously you could have money to do that what happens is 
um, a group of people, I'm not sure it's always families, but they move into your house. They first start it, they move in, and they guard your house until it's done. Then they get thrown out and the owners move in. Hmm. But you can't leave it. You can't leave a two by four on the ground. No, someone will steal it. Mm-hmm. So these people can move in and they they stay in the house until it's done. They could use the house as long as they guard it. Hmm. Isn't that that's so wild? You think about that. It's like free rent, kind of. Yeah. It's like just free don't rent. let anybody take the nail gun <laughs> or yeah. the hammers or whatever. Yeah, it was just that way. Huh. But it was a. It was it was interesting. Yeah. Huh. I wouldn't do it again. And right now I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that too. To say the least. So, but um, I don't know. So my art career just, you know, it's all I've done for the last fifty years. What do you think was the biggest um, obstacle that you overcame to get this far into the career? Because fifty-two years is a long time to be doing yeah. anything, really. I think the biggest obstacle was was finding buyers. Yeah. Find somebody who a lot of people can appreciate your work. But not all of them can afford it. Right. Or even, you know, there's some rich people in the valley. Or I tried to sell things in the 60s. I still try in the 2020s. They still won't buy my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just like so, the art, just don't want to do it, huh? Yeah. And and they're nice people. And it's just some different taste. Yeah. But, uh, I was just going to say that you've gone through several different artistic styles. Like some know, of your older stuff, like the geese at the airport or the pack team in NS or the elk by the mall here in Bozeman. And then you kind of moved into more impressionistic abstract style. At what, yeah. at what point was that? And what was your inspiration for say something like the blue horses or the stuff we're doing now? I think, thanks Clint. I think what it is, you realize, <coughs> I think I pretty much see my career as a plateaus. So you, you come and hit a plateau and you, you work that through that piece, and you go to the next plateau. And I always thought, you know, not having the background art, um, hurt or didn't hurt, but I thought being more representational, more real was, was better. Yeah. And some things it is. But then I started to think, well, God, you know, this is the 30th horse I, I built with, you know, I've, I've sculpted. And put the chestnuts on the inside, and you know that, and you got to kind of go like, there's got to be more to life in this. So I started making some things a little more looser, a little more abstract, and were impressionistic. And that's where I'm at now. And I love it because uh, I'm not sure if, if, if I had a, a representational horse. I'm using horses for example. Right. That I, I probably wouldn't do it. Just because uh, I could, there would be other horses come along that'd be more fun, mm-hmm. and it's not to me. After a while, putting skin on a horse that you made a taxidermy mount isn't uh, isn't what I want to do anymore. Right. So, but um, we got some things coming up, and I think I got two big horses to make that are going to go out of state, and they'll be uh, impressionistic, and uh, they'll be fun. Oh, I was stainless steel. And we'll make them, we'll put them in a big oven to color them as stainless, like a regular seal will change colors as heat goes. Yeah. You know, hold those colors. But stainless is, is great because it won't rust. Right. Or at least not normally. 
So that's what I want to do. It's more like that. Huh. And then um, doing some experimental sculpture that I don't think anybody else has done. And the, the good part about having um, commission work or whatever, you know, commission means somebody pays you to do something. Yeah. Um, you get more, you have more steady income. So like now I know I could, I could take a month and just experiment, do some neat stuff that may never, may never turn into anything, but I don't have to worry about come September 1st, how I'm going to make my house payments. Yeah. You know? So, a little less pressure. Yeah, a lot less pressure. I think that's where the best art comes from too, when you don't have to worry about selling it. Because then it's just, how how does this make me feel when I see it? And there's no pressure to, to get any money out of it. And then it's something really 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 nice yeah i think you're right clint yeah. and i think it's like i have a horse on a piano which is out in oregon <laughs> and um that grand piano this horse laying across the top with his legs a little bit over the keys is very feminine and very sexy mm-hmm. for what it is <laughs> and i sold it to an artist in oregon and i like go back out and buy it back she <laughs> she won't sell it to me i know that but I might have to do another one, something like that. But it was just cool how it was set up, and you go like, do you really want to sell this? And you go, yeah, I do, because I really got to make a living. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a there's a point in the 70s, we talked about how you how you sell your work or how you go on. Um, we made a decision not to pursue art shows and things like that. I mean, n- not the art fairs like the Russell Show and stuff, anyway, where you have a booth or something, but like Chicago you know, Art Center or something like that, or the Hershorn in, in right. D.C. How do you, if you want to be in those shows or to get the acceptance of that, you have to um, start early and start going to the county show, yeah. then the state show, then you go to Denver, then you go to Dallas, and hopefully somebody sees you. Work you, your way up. Work your, kind of work your way up. And a lot of that is, um, obviously you have to have the work. Yeah. You know, at whatever level that is. But you have to have a lot of connections. And you got to be willing to um, work those connections. Yeah. I never was. I said, I don't, you know, obviously you want to sell your stuff. But I could care less, less having a piece in the Hershorn. Yeah, it'd be okay. And it's also okay if I to have it downtown three, three forks. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be in those places. That's, but the, so in a way, that directed my art a certain direction. Take somebody like Christo, who's a, a sculptor. Did he did a lot of big, big installations? You know, the fence across Northern California. You know, and he did um, <clears throat> the gates and. Central Park in New York. Yeah. And there's 7,400 poles with chiffon material hanging down the center. Gates across all the paths in New York in the Grand Central Station. I mean, uh, Central Park, excuse me. And I went back and saw it, and I was just, I couldn't even talk. It was so <laughs> cool. You know, and that's what you, that's what I want once in a while. The blue horses get people emotionally involved. Yeah. Which is cool. And that's what I want to do. You know, I, I think now is you want to have something that gets the 
aha effect or surprise or somehow they break loose with some something they weren't expecting. Right. Like the blue horses, most people think seem as horses for the until ten seconds into it. Mm-hmm. They say, "Oh my God, they don't move," mm-hmm. or you know, they're not moving enough to be real. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what it, that's what's cool. Yeah, I you know I got gotcha. mm-hmm. <laughs> you. Know, and that's what I want to be doing. Things like that. We got a couple couple projects. You know, uh, Clint and I work together on some things, but uh, I got a couple ideas for for some sculpture that no one's done. That um, if it works out the way I want to work out, it'd be pretty cool. I got the land locked up, I think, so that's part of it. And I don't have to buy the land. I could put it on some rancher's land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be it's it's gonna be really interesting. So I won't tell you more about that later. Someday It'll be a surprise. another month from now we'll get a picture to show you. There we'll you do go. another podcast. Yeah, yeah, another what, podcast what, yeah. when it's when it's installed and yeah. Yeah, going from there. So huh. hope you hope you people haven't all gone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a good life. You know, I've done a lot of things with my family and different things, and I took a freight freight train to Minneapolis and back one one summer. Wow. And I was out of college, and that was cool. You know, we do that once. You get to see the country. Yeah, I went off the Olympic ski jump in Squaw Valley on a toboggan. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Yeah, that was that was a cool one because you know when you when you. Uh, when I lived in Livermore, in a great place to live, you know, Squaw Valley was probably three and a half hours away or something. But that's where they had the 60 Olympics. So, you know, you know you're know, 18-year-old kid, you finally get a date with a homecoming queen, and you're going up there to throw snowballs and, you know, things like that. So it took us about a half hour to climb up the top of this thing, you know. We got a toboggan, there's three of us. Get on this toboggan, come down the down the, the jump yeah and we didn't have any gloves or anything no, <laughs> no goggles we're just you know kids we end up we stayed on the toboggan toboggan we couldn't lean left or right where we'd flip it you know so we stayed on it but I was up front in the first once we got the end that I had already the snow in my eyes I couldn't see anything <laughs> but all I remember is when we hit the end you hit this up in the air Oh, goodness. All of a sudden, my crotch got really warm. <laughs> I peed my pants. Got a little leaky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of fun. So cause then we got the toboggan. We broke it up. And so we had to pay, pay 28 bucks to pay for this toboggan. You know, but the fun part was coming back to Livermore in a bus with the, the gal, the homecoming queen you finally get a date with, smelling like urine for three and a half hours. <laughs> in a hot bus, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never Good impression, yeah. He never talked to me again, which yeah. is probably smart. <laughs> which, you know? But, uh, yeah, it's, I huh. think uh, I've had a good career, and, it's, and I, I think uh, I'm going to be the most surprised person in the world when I die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I expect the sculpt, I'm 75, I expect to sculpt until I die, which it's either tomorrow or 30 years from now. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and then um, I hope they keep coming up with new ideas, and mm-hmm. that's what I what I want to do. Make people happy. We just um, shipped a life size sculpture of a stainless steel horse, which we put in an oven and. Brought up to 1100 degrees, that heard a blue. It's on a nice stand, 
and then uh, we created that and we sent to Ukraine as a gift to the people of Ukraine because hmm. I figure you know they we ship them bombs and you know mortars and all that stuff over there Why too. Not ship them a horse too. Yeah, I thought just mm-hmm. give them some artwork. Yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting too. Where like the Russians are blowing up thousands of years of artwork on buildings and statues, and now they're getting something new from Montana. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I, yeah, it's, it's I'm hoping it's going to our sister city over there from Bozeman. It's uh, Keptoshinesi, something like that. I never pronounced it twice the same way. So that's our sister city, and they do some things back and forth, cultural things. And then, you know, Bozeman ships over some medical supplies and stuff for them. Yeah. But they're not on the western side. They're not on the eastern side where all the fighting is, at least right now. <clears throat> but I thought, you know, if we put the sculpture there, and I, I call it Mustang, which in American, you know, that, that means, you know, freedom. Hopefully. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, the, you know, the word Mustang comes from further east over there, up where the the, the steps are. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where the word Mustang comes from, is the wild horses that, that those, um, not Tibetans, but, you know, that. Mongolian. Mongolians had, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's right. But I have, that's why I have Jim Dolan put my birth date on it and I put American underneath it so as long as it doesn't have the Russians don't see it it'll probably survive <laughs> but I'm hoping that you know the people go past that every day or when they go past it they'll smile someone's thinking of them yeah some besides giving them guns you know they got to have the guns I understand that but they need some artwork too yeah so this is so right now we found out yesterday day before the the ship is now it's almost like, I don't know how, what takes so long to get there. I, th- I think part of the challenge is when you work for yourself, things happen. If you yeah. want this to happen today, you can drop everything else and make it happen. Right. You don't have to sit back and say, oh, well, this going to take six weeks to do this. We've been forever at this horse. Can have, hey, if it was a pregnant Mary, would have had, <laughs> had a cold by now. <laughs> you know? But it's um, due in... Uh, Donetsk, Poland, which is one of the ports there. We have a tracker on it. So it's due there the 25th of August. <clears throat> and I don't know how long it will take to across Poland. It might be a day or it might be three weeks. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, hopefully the Ukrainians know what's coming. They have three different locations they're looking at. So I, I hope they'll be happy with it. If not, they, you know, they can send it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they won't. Mm-hmm. But well, thank uh, you guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. Got a couple more things. I guess sure, one last know. thing I had on this stuff. I guess. Um, do you have any advice for us young people in this world today? I think never, ever, ever give up. As soon as you you give up, everything the string drops. Yeah. You know, you you just have to keep with it and you look at the the challenges we have today I mean they haven't changed in the 50s we had challenges the peace move there you know lynch still lynching a lot of people in the south yeah you know and then we went through the peace movement and then we went through Vietnam and then the stuff in you know far east 
Yeah. Or and then we have the challenge of the political system now, whatever side you're on. <laughs> but you know, I think we always have challenges, and I think that's just part of it. And he has to say, okay, we'll get through this too. I mean, Vietnam was a pretty big challenge to this country. You know, I lived 40 miles from Berkeley. They were burning buildings. Yeah. You know, and all that stuff. And I think, I think just basically, find do what you want to do. You know. Just because the engineering pays the best doesn't mean you should be an engineer. No. You should be an engineer because you want to be an engineer. Right. And if you want to be an artist, you'll find a way. And maybe you have to work part-time someplace else for a while, you know. Or maybe you have to marry a, a rich partner. That <laughs> probably mm-hmm. also helps, you know. Mm-hmm. be a little <laughs> easier. Yeah, a little easier. It could be easier. Mm-hmm. But actually, it could be a, a big block, too. True. Then you, you're not, you don't have yep. to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think... Just don't give up. Just keep with it, and, just, and eventually, it'll start happening. Yep. You know, no plan B. Yeah, no. Yeah, no plan B. You, yep. you, yeah, you, you burn the boats. That's right. It's a big thing I've heard from a lot of people. It's just there's no other plans. This is what we're gonna do, and there's the boats we build to get here are getting burned right when yeah. we get here. Yeah. Who was the the Spanish? It was a um, one of the conquistadors. Oh, I think Soto? I know what you're talking about. De Soto, when he got that to, to Central America, and they came over like nine ships or something yeah. like that. Well, you know, they, they landed. They spent a lot of time get, getting in shape on the beach, the whole bit. The, the, the sailors thought it would be great because they're going to sit in the boats and just kind of float around till, till they're ready to go home. And he got them all lined up. They got them all cheered, ready to go. Says, so what are we going to do first? He said, burn the ships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, what, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going back home. We're taking their ships, not ours. Mm-hmm. That committed everybody there. Yeah, right. You, know, you burn the ships. Mm-hmm. You know, huh. and I think that makes a big difference. Then you're committed. Yep. Right. When the first hardship happens, you got to keep going. You know, you can't just get back on the ship and go home. There's no option. You're going to take the island, which yep. is a good mindset to have. Yeah. But yeah. well, one last thing, I guess, and that's sure. your got somewhere to be i guess <laughs> bad no yeah, <laughs> me too i'm there with you mm-hmm. no no but uh no because we talked about the spiritual thing earlier oh yeah um this is kind of the this was the last part of every podcast that we do it's just about whatever spiritual stuff yeah, or i think do you have anything that comes to mind i i was raised catholic with catholic schools for eight years and four years of public high school then you know a public university and I think um, I'm not Catholic anymore. It wasn't their fault. It was just my own my own way of going with something different. Yeah. And so I've been, um, the last 30 years, been doing something called a, a Course in Miracles, which is a self-help book on how to get home. And that's where I put my, my emphasis. But the spirituality, I, as far as I can tell, everybody gets home. I think so at some point. At some point we get home. Yep. And everybody, because, you know, if we're all children of God, and you guys don't have kids yet, I don't think, at least not <laughs> none you recognize. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. you know, you, you think about your own children or grandchildren, there's no way you could ever condemn the tale. Not possible. Mm-hmm. Not care how crazy you are. So if, you know, if there is a God, which I obviously believe there is, um, we're always children, and everybody's going to get home. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he brings everybody home. Which, yeah, it's uh, uh, it means we're we're all actually we're all one. We're not individual individual bodies, but that's not the real the real person. Yeah, that's his spirit. The thing for me, because I've been on quite a journey on finding "quote unquote" home, I guess if you want to uh-huh. call it that. And that's the one thing I've learned is that we're we're so connected in so many ways that it it doesn't even it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, and you can't force somebody into a religion or faith or spirituality. They've got to come to it on their own to fully believe in it. Yeah, and it's. I agree with you. I, I think it's we're. We're here as a body, and but the real, the real us is spirit, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with anything else. So that's why people say, "Well, you know, how come Dad doesn't come back and just give me a couple hints on, like, you know, numbers of the lottery or something like that?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Wouldn't the reason they don't nice? do it because this here is a dream. It's a dream, and we have, and if when you wake up, you know. You realize you never left home. If it's a dream, yeah. you're still home. Mm-hmm. So when you leave here, you wake up and you find your home. It's quite a vivid and long dream, but it'll teach you some things along the way. That's for sure. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I guess friends are pretty spiritual, and and most of them uh, don't express it among other people because it's everybody's their own thing. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you start being becoming the minister and there are some good ones out there. I have a brother who's a minister and it works out you know good for him that that was his this calling. But I think basically it's it's you is in charge of yourself. And you gotta decide what you wanna be you do you wanna be a know your your spirit or do you want to be a body and, and watch it deteriorate and think, Oh my God, that's me you know, I my elbows hurt. My, you know, head hurts or something like that. Yeah. No, that's all. That's all frivolous. It's not the real thing. The real thing is your spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that's. Uh, we can get into that. And we could get hours on that. Oh yeah. But I think if you if you realize that w- what it really means, because uh, if if God is perfect, right? Yeah. I get back to the real simple steps. Okay, he's perfect. I think everybody can agree with that. So if he's perfect, he cannot create the imperfect. Does that make sense? I mean, if he's perfect, I mean, yeah, he can't create. He doesn't draw a horse with three legs. <laughs> he draws <laughs> with four, four legs, legs on the yeah. horse because that's perfect. You know, I mean. But right. Yeah, yeah. But the perfect. Okay. So, you look at your body, or this world. Everything here deteriorates. Mm-hmm. It all breaks apart eventually. Eventually, your body is going to be reused by some, you know, something else. In the universe. Okay. If you were if you were perfect, that wouldn't happen. You'd have this perfect body, which nothing, which is your spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. That's where your perfect is. But you're not perfect as the body. You know, I pinch there, it hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a temporary vessel. The temporary thing. Yep. It's up to you to decide to this time around if you want to go home or not. And maybe I don't know if you know reincarnation is possible or not. I mean, it's you want to believe it, believe it. It doesn't make any difference. What your beliefs doesn't have nothing to do with what's real. No. 
So you, if it's, what's real is that you, you, God made you perfect, and that's what you are. You don't have to worry about anything else. No. Nope. You know, and, and Jesus said, you know, be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. Okay. What well, what more do you need? If you don't need anything else, if you've already un, already heard that, you don't need anything else. Mm-hmm. And it's not that things don't suffer here and you have a good time or or whatever. Yeah, but I can't imagine this the best times here in this thing be anywhere close to what it would be like when you're right. when your spirit when we're done here. Yeah, when we're done here. Yeah, and some people have some psychic powers, and I think some of that is is probably there. I don't. I don't. You know, I've I've had a few episodes things, but it's not not like something tremendous where you know. Yeah, super twelve crazy. disciples came in, and brought pizza one night, and we <laughs> sat and had beer and pizza. You know, have you had yeah. supernatural experience with like aliens or ghosts or anything? Uh no. I've had it where I've I've left the body. Ooh. Hmm. And that's been probably six eight years ago. Wow. And uh, I, I did that. Maybe four or five times. Usually, I was in bed, and I could get up and just—I mean, I would just, just your you just soul left your yeah, you soul left your body, look down, your body is there, and you're you're above it. But as soon as you bring it into consciousness, like it's a body, back, back in, in you yeah, go, you, yep. you, and you don't you don't fall. You know, it isn't like you you're you're above this body, but as soon as you do that, you're just, just, you're just body again. Yeah, you don't fall into the body. Were you trying to do this, or was this just just happened? Uh, Kind of just happened. Yeah. But I used to be able to. I still sit and meditate, especially at night, and uh, when it's quiet, and I could bring a presence into my system, where it's like a like a hum, hmm. and I can make it be really strong, or bring it back down. And it's not it's not physical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something else. Because you can train to like astral project or whatever you want to call it, where your soul leaves and you can move around outside your body. But I've I've been too chicken to try it because <laughs> I've heard there's side effects, which yeah, I don't, I don't want to get into. I think you probably could. I, when my my first wife died, she died of cancer. Um, She's forty three and died in my arms, and it was so interesting because I. You know, she's down to less than 100 pounds, you know, just can't reach you up. And I end up, I asked her, you know, if she wanted any water or something. She took, shook her head no. Then she took uh, four deep breaths and and smiled and left. Hmm. It was like, I mean, like. That's quite a yeah, experience turned, to be part yeah, of. Yeah, and she turned. It was interesting because, you know, I've been around dead people who died before. But she turned great, just like this. It was like having a thermometer, her old face down, just whole body just turned gray, huh. like that. Mm-hmm. And you go like, "Wow, that was you know totally something left." Yeah, something left. And, and I think she, she felt physically lighter. Now maybe it's because she did wasn't breathing in anymore or something. I don't say she lost a pound or two, but she was lighter. She felt lighter. But then with the kids and I, we um, we put her. In, we had a you know the black bag, and I had my my kids who were nine and eleven, mm-hmm. and um, we put her in the bag, zipped it up, and we we let the body cool off in the house first in the bedroom, and then we called the mortuary, and they came out with, you know, 
they're all solemn when they got their ties on and right and they're all yeah you know, doing what they're supposed to do <laughs> yeah but i said we this we'll 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 call you when when you want you in here so the kids and i put her in the in the bag and zipped it up because the kid that the kids the kids my kids know that wasn't their mom they know their mom had it left you know if the, the physical body was just a vessel and they knew it right then you know so it, it it was good for all of us to do that the, you know the kids and i to see that it wasn't the body wasn't real yeah huh. i think that's an amazing lesson to teach your kids though i'm sure it was very difficult to go through that but as a child yeah. and yourself and but to show them that that's mom's gone and that's just her yeah. vessel and she's still around somewhere but yeah you're you're not going to get attached to your your meat suit well, yeah, when, when they had the the ashes, you know, we didn't pick them up from the funeral home for a year. I, we, we, the kids and I decided, you know, it's not mom. What are we going to do with this? Are we going to pull it in the garden? And you go out and talk to the flowers every morning? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? We said no. Then her dad died a year la- later, so then when he died, her mom wanted the, um, her t- the ashes be with her dad and, and have a three, three thing. But... My kids, I only took my kids one little bit, took them to the grave site once. I said, this is not mom. You know what? I know it. But you should know where where the marker is. Yeah. And I don't know if they've ever been back. I've, I go maybe once a year when I, you know, just see what there's any, anything, any, any disturbance on it. There hasn't been. Right. But that was just, of just, uh, and one night, I sat up in bed and I was having more than a dream, but it was my wife was, she appeared, and I could recognize that maybe like a 30-year-old or something like that, and look healthy, but she was in a, like in a library, and I recognized the clothes she had, those, you know, her own clothes on, and I asked her, how is it? And she said, it's great, I love you, and then she faded off. And I had never asked since then, because I didn't need to. Mm-hmm. And what he's asking, well, how was the week this week? Mm-hmm. Was, you know, <laughs> did you watch that game with the Yankees? Yeah. They blew it. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, and it just, so I, I decided, nope. Okay, now I know from that, and I don't need to ever ask again. Huh. Because asking again is almost like you're doubting. Right. Mm-hmm. What did I do here, you know? That's what it did, and, and all of a sudden it was like, you know, gone and it worked out good and my kids i took my kids then up uh after three days after the funeral and all that stuff it was in september so we i actually had to borrow money to get out of town didn't have anything left after cancer went to three forks and i pulled off the side of the road i said okay if we go straight ahead we're going to go to the, the the seattle you know aquarium but if we turn north here, we'll go to the West Edmonton Mall. Mm-hmm. They said West Edmonton Mall, so we you know went to Calgary, and up then up to Edmonton, and it was really cool because uh, it was a, a school day. It was September, maybe twentieth or something like that. But school was on. Right. So you ever been to the West Edmonton Mall? They have like seventeen different water water <laughs> slides. You know, I mean, some mm-hmm. just go around in circles, shoot you down, and they have a beach and they have a wave machine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 
four or five foot waves up against the sand, right? So we got there, and they have all the stores and all that other stuff. But it was cool because when we got there, probably at 10 in the morning, we had the whole park to ourselves for two and a half hours. Hmm. Holy crap. The guys sold hot dogs and the lifeguard. Hmm. And there's no one else but us three. So we could wild, run for the whole thing and do what we wanted to do, do the water slides, do the waves. We just ran for two and just a half had hours. fun. And no mm-hmm. one else even came in. We thought, he said, where is everybody? He says, I don't care. We're here. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> somebody arranged it for us to be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just have a good time. Yeah. So we did. Huh? Then you came back and you, you know, get things going here again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just part of life. Huh. So. Well. I here. appreciate your time, Jim. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for for allowing me to, you know, spread it out a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. This is this is what this is about. Just telling stories and talking yeah. about life. Mm-hmm. So so, I'm wondering. You look at you're doing this blog. Mm-hmm. Blog. Get sure, ready. we can call it that. Yeah, mm-hmm. whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the wrong term. But I'm wondering, okay, you, you know, 75, good health and all that stuff. But uh, I think, you know, but I'm wondering about doing like a, an autobiography. Sure. And I know there's probably ways of doing that with a speaker and a phone and, you know, yeah. print it out. That's what I think I'm, I want to do. If I got to sit there and type it, I can type. It'll be forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, but if I could sit there and do this, because I think it's not, it might just be your, even your grandkids who would like appreciate yeah. how, how you grew up and what, uh, what went on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's honestly, speaking of that, Clint and I, well, I guess I, because whatever, I created it, but Clint's been along for every part of it. But uh, that was kind of the, big point of it because when we start talking to because a lot of our guests have been younger people so far mm-hmm. and not to say you're old but you are the oldest person yeah. we've had on so far but it was it was a point to me to be like to ask these older people that we have like our parents or grandparents or somewhere in there like what what would you want to tell your kids somewhere down the line when it's 30 40 years down the line and we're still listening to this stuff and we look back on it and you just want to reminisce on memories or what your grandfather said or father said or yeah and so this was kind of a part of it just like putting this stuff down and then we can go back and I, listen to it it makes sense mm-hmm. i have a uh autobiography well my great-grandfather was james dolan too um come over from ireland fought in the civil war homestead in nebraska did well moved out to california lost it all during the depression <laughs> You know, of course, but you know they have. It's great, you know. It's great to have that that you know hundred page book, yeah, mm-hmm. hardback. What they what they made, you know, some of the challenges they went through, you know, and and the good good and the bad. But you, you realize that they had the same challenges you have. Yeah, might have been different different era, but it, it's it's kind of cool to see that in their stories they have in there, or the stories you know like of your parents or something. Well, how did your dad start this ranch? Eh? Dad, mm-hmm. mom. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's that's a major deal. Yeah. I think about that a lot when we do this. Is 
you know, my grandkids listen to these podcasts, and I would find it very interesting to have my grandfather's novels or, you know, whatever it may be. But I think this is a good way of doing it in today's world. Yeah, I think you're right because, you know, my kids, I tell them some of the stuff I do, I've done, and uh, they have to. They, they don't ask Don, Don, but they say, did you guys really do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did, and this, your dad really did this. This mm-hmm. is how we did it. Now we t- we took a freight train to, East, to Minneapolis and back, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it sounds sometimes, they think, how did you do that? Well, you just got out and did it. Yep. You know, and not, not all it was crazy things, but, you know, going to school, trying to do what, all the stuff you wanted to do, and. And I think the kids need to. You had you had some challenges too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't all just it's easy, not all easy rainbows street. and yeah sunflowers th- or whatever you want to call it. And I think I get some encouragement that they too can do it. Yeah, because I think I look at you know my dad. I go back to my my great grandfather with that book. He go like, wow, you know he's in you know in the Civil War and some some pretty good battles and. He, Explains a couple times is he said he stopped three times for surrender. No one came along, so he just kept on walking. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, I mean you hear that too. This is all like they were you know charging bayonets and mm-hmm. but he yeah. he stopped three times to surrender. No one came along, so he just kept on walking and got back to Union troops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and those I mean a lot of those stories are just gone with the yeah. memories that are. And my my father in law was a great guy. He feel, B-24s in World War II in the Pacific, you know. And he would tell me about the flight, and he would not tell me about the combat. You know, then and my other uncle, Jim, flew 50 missions over Europe in a B-24. It took three planes to make 50 missions. Wow. But you look at, you know, you look at that, uh, uh, that one B-24 movie, Memphis Bell. Yeah. They're trying to make 25. Well, Jim did 50, mm-hmm. you know, and they had to do 50. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it's it, what you, the stories they tell my, my father-in-law was, it was just really interesting. You think about, you know, a 19-year-old pilot flying in the Pacific. You come from Deer Lodge, Montana, from a sheep ranch. It's crazy. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and doing this stuff, and you go like, wow. You know, and he talks about where they had, um, he t- and I kind of it's okay to say this. he's he's been dead for a long time but they had a navigator in their in their flight that wasn't doing the job right you know so they cuz you miss the island you're screwed yep. you're going in the water and most of the time it's silence you can't you can't talk but he was he was from New York and that didn't make any difference in New York it just stuck with me he said they end up He's consistently off on the navigation for the, I don't know how many planes were in the flight, but so and he did say it was his plane, but I think it was. He says uh, when he walked back to back in the plane, somehow the, the Bombay doors opened. They dropped him into the ocean because he put everybody's life on jeopardy. And they said, nope, no more of this. Huh. You know, you, you think about that guy's doing that stuff. Yeah. And he had a, so they had landed a plane once where they they were so far off that they they re, when they realized they were off they were, when they landed they had one engine the set, uh, the third engine died when they hit 
and they taxied in on the one engine out of the four. Oh, goodness. And they said that everything in that plane, they took axes, threw all the guns out, everything out. He said even the, even the raft, everything at any weight at all went out the Bombay door. <laughs> and they're mm-hmm. chopping, chopping inside the plane up to make it lighter to get home. Mm-hmm. You know. After that, you'd probably want to kick that guy out too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it was the same time, but he said they thought they were over there where it's supposed to be somewhat. And I have his, his, his diary on, his, on the stuff, which is pretty cool. But he said they're up in the, above the clouds and they couldn't see how to get down through the clouds where they were at. And said so, a, a P 51 came up through the clouds because they heard them. Right. And they followed this P 51 down through the clouds and, you know, they landed right behind the P 51. Huh. But you go like, wow, that's pretty interesting stuff, mm-hmm. you know. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. So the you know, stuff they went through, and luckily, I mean, yeah, I got <laughs> two uncles, both. One who's Guadalcanal, he's 100 years old, he's a Marine, and um, he, he's in Ohio. He's, he's been in bed for the last nine years. Doesn't get out of bed. <sighs> You know, it's a tough, tough deal. But being a Marine in, in you know, right. Guadalcanal would be pretty pretty uh, interesting. And I had yeah. another one, my mom's brother, who was, went in at 17. He landed on the beach in Normandy at 17. Jeez. But in, in the afternoon. But both those guys were never straight after that. I'm sure not. I mean, you, could, they just, you could just tell there's something different going on. You know, the, then they called it uh, shell shock. Now it's the PDSC, you know. But you don't know how many of those guys were out there that had no no backup. You know, even Vietnam, we had one of our friends who was went to school with us, flunked out, went in Vietnam, came back as a Marine. He got shot up a little bit. He's he actually got blown out of a a turn of a, of a truck. Had a machine gun uh, circle that you move it around. Well, he just changed with this guy that was up there who wanted to get down, and Daryl got up into that thing. They hit a landmine, blew him into a tree. Oh, he said he was hanging upside down by his two legs in a tree when they found him, you know. But he said uh, when he got to school down here, um, a big kid, but they gave him like two weeks' worth of of adjustment when he got back. Yeah. That was all, two weeks. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're cured. You're okay. You know, no, he wasn't. But he's going to school with us. And 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 we, we took it on to us living in a house in North Wallace to keep to keep him informed much we could, to help him much we could. We didn't know what's going to help him, you know. But end up, uh, we had a couple things. We had, couldn't get the bed upstairs. And the landlord said, you know, we're living $15,000 homes. They weren't anything great. But he says, just the house how you want to make it so like you can work. So took a chainsaw and cut the sill plate out of the, <laughs> the door so we could get the bed upstairs. <laughs> you know, it's a chainsaw. You know, mm-hmm. Got pretty good. And we just settled in for like two days. We were just getting all our stuff there. And, and there was a cop living next door. And I know he had a couple kids, but he came into the house and didn't knock. Came into the house, right? And looked around, and we're all like, "What's what's this about?" You know, we haven't done anything stupid yet. We know we're just college kids. But he uh, he said, "We will have no wild parties here." And we're looking around like, 
that's what we do. Mm. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Sounds <laughs> you like a better move. <laughs> yeah. So Daryl took a chair and threw it through the front window of the, of the you know, the picture, not picture window, but it's a good size, big enough to put a chair halfway through it. Yeah. He told the cops, says, you tell us when it gets wild. <laughs> you know, Daryl had that look like he just got out of the service. Mm-hmm. And the guy realized that he moved the next day. Mm-hmm. He and his family moved. He just said, see you later. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of cool to see Daryl back down and pop, you know. <laughs> no wild parties. You tell us where to get swallowed and throw the chair through the front, front window. Huh. But, different time for sure. Yeah, different times. And you have that with guys coming back from Afghanistan and yeah. you know, Iraq. It's too bad. It's still there. But I have friends from Vietnam that still have nightmares. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure 50 it gets years, 50 years later, 55 ingrained years later. into your probably DNA, honestly. Yeah. And you just go like, you know, how their families got screwed up. And, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think huh. this is kind of my crazy conspiracy on some of the things that are happening nowadays with Vietnam and World War II. A lot of people came back with PTSD and were overly hard on their children and then a lot of those children overcorrected so for their parenting and i think a lot of them are raising their kids the opposites of their grandkids or of their parents where it's like you're super duper lovey and your best friends with your kids and those kids are raising kids and now people are just a lot different than they used to be not not softer but just i don't know yeah i think you're working on this conspiracy it's got to really, you know, affect you that whole, th- that whole service thing. Mm-hmm. If you go into combat, yeah, you know, yeah. I just, I lucked out. I was an ROTC up at MSU when I first went here. The first two years of college, all land grant colleges, all male students had to be an ROTC. Really, it was required. That's, to me, that's not that bad of a deal. No, you know, it, but Vietnam was going on, and you know, of course, we're in school, so, and I was in a. I tell everybody was I was a military army ROTC, but we were in a special forces group, which means we go. It was like advanced Boy Scouts. That's that's <laughs> good. It was it was nothing special. We got to shoot mortars once in a while and and M16s. No, no M14s. Yeah. No, no, we had we had M1s, the regular stuff. But it was just uh, you had you had to be. So the campus was about I think six thousand. I graduated. But a third of the camp, you had to have uniforms for drills yep. and for classes. So a third of the MSU campus was in uniform, you know, almost huh. any day. Didn't the freshmen have, like, caps or something, too? Didn't they have some sort of oh, dress yeah. code? Yeah. It was, you know, of course, volunteer, but you got a little baseball, like a little baseball cap, a little lid, and it had the class of, mine was class of 70 on it. And if you're caught without your, without your cap... They shave an M in the back of your head. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then so you kept a cap on all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to the showers, you take it with you, you know. <laughs> but it, what the, the the whole thing was, it was just interesting. It was, but it made you all together. Then they had, I think it was the last home football game or close to that. And, and, and if they had a big medicine ball, yeah. which is probably – five six feet in diameter i can't but it was a huge huge big ball and so they had a contest with the freshmen and the sophomores and if they put the ball on the 50 yard line and had everybody lined up on the foul lines i mean the 
you know, the one yard line. Yeah. And shot a gun off. And if you could push the ball through the other uprights or down that end, you could take your cap off for the rest of the, <laughs> the quarter. If you if the sophomores got it through, you had to keep your cap on through grad through uh, t- the tests. You know, it was a. Uh, I remember is it really got me to the point where I realized you see these crowds how can people get squished and get killed mm-hmm. oh shit it's easy mm-hmm. we pushed this ball and I was right like second guy from the ball out and when everybody packed the ball didn't get up in the air but everybody just and they should have but it kept packing and packing and, yeah. and at the point where my glasses fell off my face and I couldn't grab them mm-hmm. you're like this and you're just trying to keep your yourself up huh. so you can breathe and knocked about nine that guys. About fun. nine guys out got knocked out nine or ten. Mm. <laughs> My roommate bud through his ears. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it was like you know, go like, okay, now I understand. It's like I go to a place even I go to a movie theater, I know where the exits are and I can almost tell you exactly mm-hmm. how many steps to the you know, to the right or left to get to the door. Yeah, that sounds like a scene from Braveheart. Like you guys are running into each other. Yeah, it was about like that. Yeah. And you just you know I don't know. Did you guys win? You know, I don't honestly don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you got knocked out. <laughs> yeah, I remember kind of because it. Of course, the guys in the back don't know. The, everybody's screaming. Yeah, mm-hmm. the guys in the back don't know. The guys are screaming for their lives, not like screaming because it's cool. They were screaming because they they were <laughs> couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. They finally get panicked. So how do you peel everybody back from the backside? It was a challenge, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if he won or not. Hmm. Thinking back at it, but. It was it was interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. And you were a pledge for AGR when you first went to school. How was well, that? I was a junior. Oh, I that's right. I pledged, so it wasn't. Uh, and I I was with all the the kids anyway. Me and Ag, and they're a great group of, of guys. You know, in for a lot of fun, and some of them studied. You know, <laughs> but end up uh, <laughs> begin with going as a junior. You're, you're too late to. Yeah, you don't want to do the right. slop stuff. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you're already. And plus, when I left, I grew up in a pretty restricted, strict family. I came to college. Last thing I wanted was someone tell me what I to do, to, when to what, do it. Yeah, I just was like, it wasn't in my my vocabulary at all. Yeah. So, uh, Herbal Zaff and I, we the fraternity used to be down on West Garfield. Mm-hmm. And then, but what the challenge with it was. You know, everybody slept in the dorm in the basement, or the majority of them, unless they slept in their rooms. I mean, their study rooms. But there'd be guys coming at 2 o'clock in the morning. People had alarms going off at 4 to say, guys want to get up and study. Mm-hmm. So it was never a quiet place to sleep, you know. And that was hard when you, you know, you're trying to study and stuff like that. And like this, so Herb and I, we had a couple beers on us, uh, and one night we put the garden hose through the window and hosed the fraternity down. <laughs> we thought that was great. Yeah. <laughs> and they called us in, and they said, we don't think you're fraternity material. <laughs> and we, See you we, later. It was a mutual agreement. I don't know if they we quit or they threw us out. Yeah. It was one of the two, and it worked <laughs> out good. So it was, huh. it, was, it, was, it was fun. And then was it Terry Wolf that got you into as an honorary member? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I'm a full member. You're a member. I yeah. got the belt buckles. You got the pin. Oh, there Thir- we go. Yeah, thirteen. I got the secret handshake. Mm-hmm. I got the yeah. I What's your pin? 
1347 oh, or okay, something okay. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are probably right after that. Maybe before. What's your number? Well, your belt buckle. My, mine's 1330. So I think you're like 1247 or something like that. Oh, okay. Which is yes, yeah. somewhere in there. I think what our other it? roommate is 1347. Yeah. <laughs> it was somewhere in there. But, but, you know, it was, we had a lot of fun in the college. But then back then, you know, Bozeman was so, so small. Past, you know, the, the radio stations closed at 10 o'clock at night. They, they checked off. There was no more radio stations past 10. Huh. You had to get uh, KOMA in Oklahoma City. <laughs> or Castor had a big station, you know, FM. But yeah. both on 10 o'clock, they played the Star Spangled Banner or some poetry, some military guy. Said did signing it. off. Signing off. They set off the TVs, too. Jeez. Everything died at 10 o'clock. So, you know, it's like, wow, this is interesting. I first, I came to college here. I, I was laughing so hard because... I came from California, and of course, we had a lot of TV stations where I was at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they had a the Lone they had the Lone Ranger on the radio. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? probably the thirties or forties. I couldn't believe it. The Lone Ranger on radio. Mm-hmm. I never knew he could do a radio, you know. But it was the Lone Ranger, you know, on the radio. That was kind of kind of wild. Yeah. Were there any bars that you'd go to in college that are still around? La Hopra. Oh yeah. Yeah, if you yeah, look yeah. Up the what? The half bra. We drove by it today. I guess you weren't with us, but But you know, they have tables, old plywood tables around they used to have in there. There's two tables on the ceiling with my my name on both. Well, I of think them. I've seen it, that. It's yeah. in the Barbuda yeah. by Molly Brown and yeah, where yeah, the scoop okay. used to be. I think I've seen those tables, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, I I the, they quit making them sometime along the way there, but you used to have all the the class of graduates put their names on the table yeah. with pocket knives. Was the Crystal a popular spot to go, or was that around well, yet? The Crystal was a, a dive. Yep. It was a cowboy dive. Was the Hoff nice back then? The Hoff no. bra? Yeah, I was like, it, it, I it, I it, it doesn't I look like it's changed much. For I, don't, I don't think that, well, it, maybe they maybe they had Buffalo Restorations going once and clean. <laughs> 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 no, it, it was... Good place to drink and beer and all that stuff. <laughs> well, we said most of the time it was the Eagles. <coughs> oh, yeah. And next Eagles was the VFW. And across the street was the Stockman's, which is right next to the Bozeman Hotel. You yeah. know, back, back, no, Bozeman Hotel. But the, the Crystal, they had a place called the Maverick, which was the back end next to the, next to the bank. They had like four that were more cowboy um, redneck or blue collar people. Yeah, hmm. there's nothing around Bozeman now. I mean, that's where the money is, where the kids are. So, right. Did you ever hear of a bar called Maypings in Bozeman? No, I don't think so. Okay, I've heard many stories about it, but we'll move on. Yeah, I don't remember that <laughs> one at all. But we had you know, there was enough bars, but everybody had had their favorite, and yeah, went back and forth. But the Eagles was always good, and the VFW. Mm-hmm. was next door and, you know it'd be fun to for you guys to go back and just sit there and see the crowd come in mm-hmm. now see where your dads were there or your, yeah. your grandpas or some of you mm-hmm. guys you know my dad was telling me that the crystal used to be the cowboy bar in yeah. the 80s and then now it's more of more of a ski bum bar yeah which is fun yeah pretty pretty fun divey bar well, I think they, they 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 go where the money is mm-hmm you know, 
and we used to go out to Stacy's at night because the bars in Bozeman would close at one. Hmm. Stacy's closed at two, so we had to go to the Four Corners or, or Stacy's. Hmm. Couldn't believe they'd cut off, cut us off of one hour of drinking. <laughs> That's know. unbelievable. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was interesting growing up. As like you guys had a good, good time in college, and yeah. and I did too. And it was, you had to study to keep up with stuff, but you could still have a lot of fun. I think. I'm oh, just saying time management is probably the biggest thing you learn in college. Oh, yep. It's like you can party all you want, but you got to get your stuff done. Yeah, That's I, tough I for learned, kids. You know, what I did with my class is I, I had a spiral notebook. Wrote down everything, you know, the lectures, all once you can. And the, they basically tell you what be on the test. You just have to underline it, yeah. you know, keep on going. See, then I took it from that. And as soon as I get back to the dorms, I have most of my classes in the mornings. And so when I get back to the door, if I had an hour, I'd rewrite those notes again and expand them on another spiral binder, which was your your permanent one. And I'd review everything every day. All, all my classes every day, review everything. And if you just look through it, just review it. So time my easiest week was finals week mm-hmm. because I already had all this, the most stuff memorized. And my one cool thing in college I was taking organic chemistry, and some of that just clicked with me. It was simple for me, and the, most of the classes had a hard time what the kids did, but I went into the finals with more more points than it was because <laughs> I had a bonus points. Yeah, know? and they had this one test. The guy wanted to make sure we all got something out of it, so he he'd put one of the tests. He put blanks across the bottom. He says, "You know, print your name." Well, people would put, you know, you know, Clint Les or whatever there. Yeah. I put your name. Yeah. <laughs> and then when it came back, he says, only one person got it right in here. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm looking around, I'm going, I know it's me. And they know it's me. <laughs> I, mean, I was not smart in any of class except for this one, you know. Mm-hmm. Is it Jim Dolan? And I get up, take a bow, and those guys are going like, you bastard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then I, when I took the final, I remember taking this two-hour final, right? Yeah. Well, it took me 15 minutes, and I reviewed it twice. Then I made it, they had the, the, old, the building's not there anymore. They had the, the, all the seats t- tear down to the, the desk. Yeah. So I got up, I 50, maybe 20 minutes at the most. I did it, review it made a paper airplane out of the, the pages and said, Dr. Jennings, give me a test. Yeah. <laughs> Flipped that paper airplane all the way down to into his desk yeah. <laughs> and walked out and, Huh. It's feeling pretty good because, you know, for once in your life, you just stomped everybody, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, Yeah, we always thought that the guy that got done first in the test, rather got them all right or all of them wrong. All of them wrong, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for being on here, Jim. Yeah, I appreciate it. I don't know who's, who's going to listen this long, but, you know. We've got, we got a couple consistent, consistent yeah. listeners. Road but, trips. Yeah. People turn it on. Yeah working yeah have a good road trip (laughs) (laughs) thanks jim thank you thank you guys